All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We do have some seats up front, please. You can fill in. It's okay. I know everybody hates to sit in the front, even, even me, so I understand that. That's quite all right. Um, good evening and welcome to the Pratt Library. My name is Reginald Harris. I'm in the systems department here, and I'm glad to see you and everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure uh, to welcome you and to welcome Dr. John A. Rich, who's here to talk about uh, his book, Wrong Place, Wrong Time, Trauma and Violence in the Lives of Young Black Men. Um, this is part of our uh, series of programs that we have here, author programs and other events, here at the library, at here at Central, at the main library, and also various libraries throughout the city. You may have already picked up, and if you hadn't done so, please do so, our Compass um, newsletter out on the table um, at the front, uh, which lists our events. I guess the next major thing we have coming up is our annual City Lit Festival, which will be on Saturday, April 17th, which will feature a host of authors on various topics throughout this building all day, and it's really quite wonderful. Um, in the <laughs> conclusion to this thoughtful and compassionate book, uh, Dr. John Rich, Rich writes, uh, and I quote, in this book, I am not trying to provide an excuse for the actions young men might take to remain safe or to construct a functioning identity for themselves. Rather, by understanding the cycle of violence for the purposes of explaining it, we can, I believe, understand the larger roles that we can play as members of the same community. For these young men, the horizons of possibilities for the future is so narrow that they must use violence to be somebody. This alone speaks to how profoundly we have failed them. Uh, disturbed by and searching for the reasons for the large number of young black men that were victims of violent crime in Boston in the early 1990s, Dr. Rich decided to interview some of these gentlemen to learn how they navigated in such a dangerous world and the ways that violence affected their lives. Wrong Place, Wrong Time is a record of these young men's voices. Through Carrie, Jimmy, Barron, Mark, and especially the truly gripping uh, story of Roy, we learn not only the paths uh, uh, that they took, the overwhelming need to be somebody, um, we learn not only the paths that, that the overwhelming need to be somebody took many of these men down, but also how difficult it often is to do the right thing in a dangerous inner city. Um, as someone that grew up in West Baltimore as one of the good kids mainly because my grandparents would not let me out of the house I understand exactly how that is I have a um, when I was um, 16 I was walking down the street and someone stuck a gun in my face right between my eyes um, because I looked like somebody else Fortunately, uh, before he pulled the trigger, he said, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He shook my hand and let me go. Um, and I just kept walking down the street. It's sort of like, oh, okay, fine. And of course, I never told my folks because I would still be in the house if I'd done that. Um, and also, there's this little scar in the top of my head thanks to the Murphy Holmes, uh, the late lamented Murphy Holmes. Those of us who are here know that. So I understand where these gentlemen were coming from. And there's a good deal of, at least for me in any case there, but for the grace of God, go I in this book. Um, Listening to the young men in this fascinating and thought-provoking book um, and attempting to understand them will assist all of us as we work to break that cycle of violence here in Baltimore and all around the country. And the book also speaks to the stereotyping of victims of violence um, that occurs even by those in the healthcare field and other fields that are charged to care for them, which is equally disturbing and quite powerful.
Uh, Dr. John Rich is an expert in inner city health problems, particularly urban violence, men's health, and racial disparities. The director of the Center of Academic Public Health Practice, which focuses on urban trauma as a public health issue and provides programs for healing uh, for victims of violence. He's also the chair of and a professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at Philadelphia's Drexel University School of Public Health. The former medical director of the Boston Public Health Commission and the Young Men's Health Clinic in Boston, he was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2006 for his work in addressing the primary care health care needs of young men in the inner city by designing clinical services and training programs. And I also wanted to read this one other brief passage and then uh, have him come up. We cannot simply discard these young people and send them off to jail. At the same time, it does none of us any good to cast them as victims and rob them of all control or responsibility. Uh, again, I lean on the wisdom of Dr. Sandra Bloom, who argues that rather than see these young people as sick or bad, we should understand that they are injured. Injury is familiar to us. We know that past injury puts one at risk for future injury. We know that injury requires healing and rehabilitation, but we also know that not only must the injured person play a role in his or her own healing, the community must also play its role in finding and fixing the source of the injury. And above all, as we seek to do no harm, we as providers must commit to avoid making the injury worse in our well-meant attempts to treat it with moral judgments. It is a very great honor for me to welcome Dr. John Rich. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Um, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for this invitation, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to have a conversation with you this evening and to hear your thoughts. And I'm grateful to see young men and women here who can reflect upon how many of these issues, the issues that the young people in the book talk about, affect their own lives. I'd also like to thank C-SPAN for being here and for my colleague, Christina, from Johns Hopkins Press, who's been wonderful. Now, I come to this really from the perspective of a doctor, and I appreciate your uh, reading those words. That's where I ended up, in understanding that we couldn't necessarily discard, we couldn't discard these young people as sick or bad, but we had to understand what was influencing their lives. In 89, I took a job as a primary care doctor at Boston City Hospital. Now, Boston City Hospital is a municipal hospital. Many of you may know it. And I began as a primary care doctor. And as my friend Miles knows, uh, Boston City Hospital serves mostly the people in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, mostly the African-American communities in Boston. I was astounded by the fact that in primary care, I saw very few young men, particularly young men of color. But when I walked through the emergency room, through the orthopedic clinic, through the surgical wards, I saw lots of young black men, most of them injured by violence, and most of them thought to be thugs or drug dealers by the providers taking care of them. Well, one day I was walking 
through the stairwell, and I ran into a colleague of mine, Dr. Jonathan Woodson, an African-American surgeon who I knew from my time training at a hospital across town in Boston, Mass General Hospital, and he was frustrated. And he said, you know, I, I saw a young guy last week, a few weeks ago, and he had been shot and almost died. And I took him to the operating room, and we were able to save his life. But then a few weeks later, he said, I'm riding it in my car, and I hear the same young man is dead. And the, there is knowledge that we have about this recurring cycle of violence, that people who get injured tend to get injured again. And he said to me, we have to do something. Now, I didn't really know what to do at that time, but I knew that I didn't completely understand the lives of the young people that I was interacting with. My life had been, I grew up in Queens, New York. My dad was a dentist. My mom was a teacher. And I just had a different perspective. I had a different um, perspective than many of the young people I saw in Boston. And so I began to talk to young people using a method of qualitative research. That is, I took a tape recorder. I went through all of the human subjects, things that I had to do, but really ended up sitting opposite these young people while they were in the hospital on surgical ward and hearing their stories. And what I learned in that time was it wasn't as simple as I and my colleagues thought. We somehow thought that, and I would put it this way, young black men didn't just get shot, they got themselves shot. There was an e it was easy when you saw this endless stream of young people coming in with gunshot wounds to assume and to talk to them as if they had done this to themselves. It's also true that every day in the newspapers, this was true in Boston at that time, it's been recently true in Philadelphia where I now live, but I know it's true in Baltimore. We track the bodies. We report on homicide. And homicide is a devastating outcome. But if we only count homicide, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg of violent injury. The CDC reports that for every homicide, there are 94 violent injuries that did not result in death. And we know that young people who are injured not only bear the physical scars, but they bear the emotional and psychological scars that come from violence. We also know that if you take people who have been victims of gunshot wounds or stab wounds and you follow them forward for five years, 45% of those people will have been shot or stabbed again. So something about getting injured puts you at risk for getting injured again. Now, one could say, well, gee, these are bad people doing bad things. Um, they get shot, we patch them up, they go back out, and they just do bad things again, and they get shot and case closed. That is, in many ways, the dismissing idea. But as I talked with these young people, I realized there was something more going on. And I want to talk to you about two things tonight, two ideas, and then engage you in a conversation about this. Because I think it does matter how we see these young people and how we see their experiences. I'd like to first talk about the impact of trauma itself. Over the past 20 to 30 years, there's been an explosion of knowledge in trauma and what we know about violent injury and what it can do. We know, for example, from studies of combat veterans 
and from studies of victims of sexual assault, that victims have psychological symptoms afterwards, so-called post-traumatic stress disorder. But even if you don't have the full post-traumatic stress, you may have other manifestations like depression. So some of the symptoms that you may see, and you may recognize these in young people or others that you know who have been exposed to violence, is something we call hypervigilance. That is the sense that you're always in danger, you're, the twitchy jumpiness that you sometimes see in, in people who feel unsafe. I mentioned depression. But we sometimes see one of the major hallmarks of post-traumatic stress is avoidance. That is, don't want to come out of the house, don't want to go to school, don't want to do anything. Nightmares and flashbacks are common, and often young people describe using marijuana or alcohol simply as a way to keep the nightmares away. Insomnia, anxiety, those are symptoms of post-traumatic stress. But one other, and I think particularly striking manifestation of post-traumatic stress is what's called emotional numbing. And I saw this most directly in a young man named David. I met David when he was in the hospital He had been shot in the side. It was not a life-threatening injury. But in the same instance where he was shot, his cousin was killed. And his cousin was his best friend. They had driven to the projects to visit some friends there. Um, While they were sitting in the car, someone walked up to the car and fired on it. He believed that it was a mistaken identity situation. But I asked David if he would simply describe to me what happened in the way that I could get a story that was different from what the newspapers would report. And here's what, here's what he said. All right, I was in an incident where me and my cousin had went to a housing development, Green Street Housing Development, and I wind up getting shot, and my cousin wind up getting killed. He paused for a moment, searching the floor with his eyes, and there's nowhere to go from there with that one. He didn't want to talk any more about it, but I asked him, can you tell me a little bit more? All right, he consented. Antoine had come and picked me up from my house, and we was on our way to our grandmother's house. We was going to wash clothes, and he was just going to pick me up. Then we wound up leaving the house because I had to go get some change. We wound up going to Stop and Shop to get some change. And then we wound up hooking up with some of our friends to go see some girls over in the projects. As soon as we got there, we wound up getting shot. He paused again and looked at me. That's really about as much as I really want to say about that. Can you say anything about what happened after that, I asked him. Well, I wasn't really thinking too much when I was getting shot, but afterwards when I got out of the car, I seen my cousin laying on the ground. I guess he must have got out of the car at some point in time and ran but I'd never seen it happen. Then when I seen him on the ground, even though I was shot too, I had to run to him to see if Antoine was all right. When I ran to him, I noticed that this liquid was coming from his pants, so it was really tense. I can't really describe it how it felt, but it was very unpleasant. It was a very unpleasant feeling. And then they rolled him over, and when they rolled him over, I seen his eyes, and his eyes was looking straight up, looked all glassy, Right then, I was hoping that he'd be all right. And then the police officers, they were were all badgering me 
they were talking about, you know, tell us who did it right now. You know who did it. They was all yelling at me. I was on the stretcher, and they was asking me questions I couldn't answer. So it was very hard. I was mad, but then again, it was just difficult. It was difficult until I got to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital and they started working on me, the only thing I was thinking about was my cousin, seeing how he was doing. Then a couple of hours went by, and then my mother came in, my mother and father. Then my sisters and brother came in, and they told me Antoine passed away, and I started to cry. He paused. His pain was not apparent in his voice or in his face or in his eyes. But I felt a wave of emotion in my eyes filled for a moment, but I blinked back the tears. I paused to let him finish. Then they took me up to the hospital room, and it was all over the news. And then the doctor, the police detectives came in. They was asking a bunch of questions. The newspaper was calling me up in the room and everything. I was getting a lot of attention that I didn't really want. That's as far as it went right there. The truth is that the, what happens when a young person gets shot, the story is critically important. It's critically important for us to understand that the trauma begins long before they get to the hospital. This is someone who lost a very important person in his life, someone he loved deeply. Well, what was the consequence for that loss? Because again, we can say, well, gee, this happens all the time. Young people have seen a lot of this. What was the consequence? And I come back to this issue of emotional numbing and what it can do to young people. Later, I asked David how all of this had changed him. David shuddered and shook his head. A couple of minutes changed everything for me. A couple of minutes changed my whole outlook on everything. This thing really messed me up. It really changed me. How, I asked. Some things I used to be nervous about, scared about, I'm not scared of it no more. I feel that I've already been through the worst. Like a lot of things that made me scared or made me nervous, they don't scare me no more. They don't affect me. Used to be if a whole bunch of dudes kept on looking at me, I used to feel nervous. Like if someone kept on giving me mean looks, I used to get nervous. But that don't happen no more. It just don't happen. It's like some of the feelings just gone. If they look at me mean now, I just look right back at them like what? It's like they took some emotions that I used to have. That nervous feeling, that scared feeling, it's gone. I think I lost emotions over this whole thing. I lost emotions. I think my heart got a little stone in it now. And like I told you, my girlfriend gets mad at me now. She thinks I don't care no more because I don't show it. And it's hurting, but I've been trying. I can feel where she's coming from, but I speak with my head now. I don't speak it right here in my heart. I know she's good for me, but since this whole thing happened, I don't give a damn what she do. And this is somebody I used to care a lot about. Now I'd be like, I don't give a fuck. And I want to be with somebody else. If I want to be with somebody else, if she wants to be with somebody else, go ahead. I lost a lot of emotion over this, and I don't even know if it's going to come back. I'm hoping that it do. I care, but if it happens, it happens. If she leaves, she leaves. Life goes on, so I really can't call it. The direct consequence of his injury was this loss of emotion. The loss of emotion robbed David of his ability 
to have instinct about his surroundings. That puts him in a dangerous place. But it is often true that young people are not credited or not seen as being, let me say, worthy of having PTSD. Um, So the patient leaves the hospital often without having any explanation about what he might feel in the days and weeks to come. The same sorts of things that you and I might feel after a car accident or after a tragedy. The patient's interpretation is, I'm going crazy. These symptoms can be very intrusive. The patient's response is often to either try and move away if they can, treat themselves with drugs, withdraw, confront other people, get weapons, and do other things that might put them in danger. What do you think happens when providers, medical providers, see these patients? They look numb. They have no emotion. They think no remorse, no feelings. This is somebody with no empathy. The disconnect is is profound. So the provider response is often to assume the worst, wash their hands of the patient, and instead fall back on assumptions about what black men are stereotypes that they've pulled, that we've pulled from the media, that we've pulled from television, and and our our deeply held ideas about what black men are and black men aren't. And I'll confess to you that along this journey, I realized that at some level, I hadn't questioned the circumstances of young people coming in who had been shot. It's pretty easy if you don't see it on a day-to-day to simply assume the worst. And so this was, for me, transformation. And I would say to you again, as I talk about young people using substances to treat their pain, or I talk about young people getting weapons, I'm not offering that as an excuse or saying that it's a good idea. Of course, having a weapon puts you at risk for being injured in worse ways. But we have to understand it. We have to explain it if we are going to in a credible way, speak to young people about how to avoid violence. There's another aspect of what I heard from these young people that I want to tell you a little bit about and see if it resonates with you. Young people talked a lot about what it meant to be a sucker and what respect meant for them in their lives. And one young man put it this way. He said... A sucker is a person that if someone says something to them or does something to them, they just sit there and take it and don't retaliate. If you're living in the inner city, you wouldn't want to be a sucker because everybody will take advantage of you. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone here, if that's something you've heard before. Now, the young victims that I talked to, that I listened to, talked about that. But I will tell you, it's not something they made up. Many of us in our own workplaces might recognize that people saying to you, don't let that person do, do that to you, or everybody will think they can do that to you. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Elijah Anderson, in his book, Code of the Street, talks about this issue of respect and how respect is valued to keep young people safe And disrespect is often what young people are responding to when violence erupts. 
Eli Anderson also said, this is part of how young people construct their identity. This kind of notion that you need a preemptive strike. You need to do something to prove to people you're not a victim. And again, I would say, we can't fool ourselves and believe that young people made this up. And in fact, many would say that the basis of U.S. foreign policy has some of that in it, right? We prove to people that we're not going to, we prove to other nations that we're not going to sit and take this. So all of us know it, all of us react in this way, all of us accept it as, as a reality, these young people as well. But I didn't fully understand the ways in which it, it made for an identity until I met Roy, Roy Martin. Roy Martin is a young man who I consider to be, in many ways, my mentor. He considers me to be his mentor. And so while I was able to tell him some things and to guide him in some ways that I had found success, Roy was able to help me really understand what many of my patients were going through. Roy really became my interpreter. Roy put it this way. One day Roy said to me, you know, your normal is not my normal. So you can't take your normal and apply it to mine because I want you to understand how it's different. I first met Roy when I volunteered for a mentor program in Boston. At that time, Roy was in pre-release after being incarcerated for three years for a shooting, a shooting in which he shot nine people. Um, none of those people died. I learned that Roy was brilliant. He was born to parents who were 15 years old at the time. And Roy, again, a brilliant child, the main thing that they taught him that he took away from his upbringing was to be a fighter. Roy was taught, if you start, if there's a fight, you end it quickly. If your brother's in a fight and you don't jump in, and do damage, you will catch hell when you get home. And Roy summed it up in this way. He said, I was taught the rule that winning justifies everything. And Roy said, that's the wrong rule. I now, I now know that's the wrong rule, but I wanted you to know that that's how I, how I grew up. And I won't tell you the details today, but Roy went from being an honor student, a bookworm, who was actually taken out of his class and put into a gifted class. Let me tell you the story. Roy was sitting in class, and he, the kids had gotten their papers back, and he and another friend had both gotten 100. And as they celebrated across the room with each other, they noticed a kid sitting in between them whose paper had a big red zero on it. And they began to make fun of him. And the teacher said... Listen, I'll teach you a lesson. You're in third grade. I'm putting you in fifth grade for a week. See how you like it. See how you like being at the, at the bottom. And he said, and they put us in fifth grade, but you know, it was hard for about a week. But then after that, we kind of caught on. And, <laughs> and I think somebody said, um, maybe we've learned something about these kids. And they then decided to move them to, to gifted school. But that tells you something. It tells you that a brilliant kid has to have a fluke, at least in the that time in those systems, to get recognized as gifted. So Roy went from being an honor student 
to a kid who hung in the streets, to a kid who robbed other people, to a major drug dealer, to jail, to pre-release, began to do his own work and his own healing, and then took an internship at the office of U.S. Senator John Kerry, where he worked for six years and became a critical person in that office, mainly because he could speak the truth of his life. I realized that it was important that Roy also share his story with other providers and doctors and nurses who I came in contact with. And so I asked Roy if he would go with me to Washington to attend a meeting of the Society of General Internal Medicine. And Roy came along. It's actually, Roy was 22 at the time. It was the first time he'd been on a plane. But we flew down, and he presented in a workshop. It was very provocative. It was very moving, and it was very educational for me and my colleagues. While we were there, uh, we had done our workshop. We were staying in a hotel in Crystal City. Uh, We went down to the courtyard, the food court that was connected to the hotel. Let me read you a little bit about that moment. We went downstairs to the mall connected to the Marriott and found the food court so that we could grab breakfast before heading out to do a lightning tour of D.C. We stopped at a small deli grill and ordered egg sandwiches on English muffins. We stood chatting as the short order cook cracked the eggs onto the grill several yards away and began to manipulate them with a large spatula. As he did, I noticed that he was using the same spatula to flip our eggs that he was using to cook raw chicken on a nearby grill. He could easily be contaminating our sandwiches with salmonella as the bacteria were undoubtedly coating the raw chicken. I turned to Roy and shook my head. He's contaminating our food with that spatula. So cuss him out, Roy said. (laughs) Roy instructed matter-of-factly. Roy was serious. For Roy, it wouldn't be enough just to say, you're making a mistake. It had to be said in a particular way. I said, no, no, Roy, I'm not going to cuss him out, but we're not going to eat those sandwiches either. I called the cashier over and asked for the cook's attention. I explained to him that he was risking making us sick by the way he was using the spatula. He immediately admitted his mistake and apologized. He discarded the eggs and the bread and started again, this time using perfect technique. He gave the sandwiches to us without charge. Still, Roy glared at him as we walked over to the nearby table. (laughs) It's cool, man. I think you made a mistake, I said to Roy. Are you telling me that that dude doesn't know about salmonella? Isn't it his job to know, Roy fired back? I would have cussed the dude out. That way he'll remember the next time. (laughs) You think, I asked with my own skepticism. Yeah, I know that's not you, but that's how I am. I just can't let things like that go. I guess I was just bred to be confrontational. We sat and ate our sandwiches and sipped our hot coffee. Despite the early hour, many people, young and old, were milling about the mall. A small group of young African-American men passed. Roy locked eyes with them and tracked them as they walked away. The menacing glare they exchanged evaporated after a long moment. And then Roy looked back at me. What was that about, I asked Roy. What? The staring. 
Yeah, that's just me, Roy said. I got an eye problem. (laughs) He said, an eye problem? That's how I grew up. I just look at people. I can't help it. When somebody looks at me, I just have to keep looking at them until they look away. Sometimes it causes trouble, but most of the time they just look away and we go on about our business. He said, you know how I told you about my parents, how they taught me to fight and do crime? Yeah, Roy, you did. So while the other parents were teaching their kids to play baseball and coaching their soccer teams, my parents were teaching us how to beat up other people's kids. What Roy was able to help me understand in in many times as we came together was that young people who had no other way to see themselves who felt so constrained by the circumstances in which they lived, who felt so deprived of real opportunities, realized that they could use violence to be somebody. That if you were known, if you had a reputation, if you had earned that reputation by putting in work, right, then, and putting in work to him, to these young people meant violence, then you could be known. And if you were known, then you were somebody. And if you weren't known, you were nobody. And Roy began to put this in the context of what his normal was. And I would say that the normal for Roy and many of these young men was what what I've not stated to this point, which is the racism that follows them through the world. And it follows them in ways where, for example, they're not hired for jobs. And many of them have impediments to being hired, like past incarceration. But many of these young people feel the rest of the world, in a sense, recoil from them. Recoil from them in a way that would imply to them that they are only marginally even human, I would say. And it it becomes a, a part of who they, how they see themselves. And it's compounded by the danger in which they grew up, by their sense that the police are not helpful, but rather are harassing in their own way, lacking a sense of safety, the unrelenting trauma in their lives, and the idea that there's no way to forge an identity except through violence. It would be tempting at this point to think that what I've painted is a a hopeless picture, but I would actually say it is a more hopeful picture than the one that many of us have walked around with for years. If, If Young people, the young people I talked about, again, offering an explanation rather than an excuse, if they are trying to accomplish something, stay safe or establish an identity by using these other forms, we have other ways to do that. We can help them have identity. It's on us to open the doors and the opportunities so they can see a future and they can see safety as a given and not unsafety as a given. The paradigm is really about healing. We can decide that these young people are bad, in which case the remedy is punishment. Or we can decide that they are sick, in which case the remedy is treatment. Or we can decide that they're injured. That they, like any of us with an injury, need healing. We have to participate in that healing. We have to take responsibility for that healing. But the community has to take a responsibility with us for finding out how we got injured and helping us to heal. 
Let me give you a concrete example about one program that we've put together in Philadelphia. Similar programs exist across the country, but it's called Healing Hurt People. The simple idea is that when a young person comes in who's been a victim of violence, we don't just patch them up and send them out. And you should know, nine out of ten folks who come in with a violent injury does not get admitted to the hospital. Those folks get sent home. They're out within hours of their injury. And here's, it, it's very simple. What we do is to meet them in that moment and find out what happened. And in that moment, we also explain to them some things are going to happen to you in the next week or so that are normal, but they're going to be disturbing. You're going to have trouble sleeping. You may have nightmares. You may have flashbacks. You may feel very unsafe. That's normal. You may not have any of those symptoms, but if you do, that's normal. It should go away, but if it doesn't go away, come back and we'll help you. But here's what you shouldn't do. Don't go get a gun because you don't feel safe. Don't smoke a lot of weed. Don't drink a lot of alcohol because this is normal. Normalizing this for young people is often the thing that gives them relief. We then identify what they need. So that to the extent that the young people we see, the young men, do not have identification cards, we have a case manager and a navigator who helps them get those things, get an ID card, get back into school, identify those future-oriented roles, things that they need. And then finally, at their request, we've put together what's called a self-group. It's a 10-week educational, psychoeducational group where these young men come together, young people because it's men and women, but come together and talk about four main ideas. Safety, self is an acronym, safety, how to manage their emotions, including the anger that they feel after they've been shot or stabbed. Dealing with loss. How do they deal with the losses that they've experienced and sustained in their lives? But how do they also deal with the inevitable loss that comes from choosing a different path? When young people decide to move on and identify a future, they often leave behind friends they love. Um, that can't be minimized. It is a loss. All of us have to figure out how we deal with loss. And then finally, the F stands for future. How do you identify a way to see past this proposed limited mortality? We say that young, I've heard it said many times that young people don't believe, many young black men don't believe they're going to live beyond the age of 21. To be honest, I have not found that to be the case. I think that many young people use that as a way to contain the anxiety that comes from the uncertainty of not knowing. But they can also envision a future. If you ask, when I ask these young people, tell me what you think you'd like to be doing in the future, they can identify things that, productive ways, meaningful work that they'd like to be engaged in. So this program is a simple it's not a solution. It's a simple attempt to address a problem that we see in the emergency department. But what's amazing and not perhaps surprising is it is not the norm. Most places, most hospitals do not do this. And no insurer will pay for the services delivered. So is it any wonder that these young people are left to their own devices? It's a simple thing that we could do. Um, 
we can reclaim, in many ways, protect the valuable resource that these young people are. But in order to do that, our own transformation must precede our service to them. And I would say that as a society, we must very clearly rethink the biases that we have about young people, particularly young, young black men, seeing them rather than a drain or a problem, see them as a resource. In fact, all of the programs that I've told, that the program I've told you about and all of the programs that I mentioned really rely upon young people who have been victims to be the service providers. When they're able to heal from their wounds and injury, they are the most qualified to speak with other young people who have been victims. But I would push us even further. Our judgments influence how we see them and influence how they see themselves, whether we realize that or not. Our transformation has got to be one that humanizes young black men, that sees them as fully human, that sees them not as members only of a group, sees them not as a stereotype, but sees them as individuals with individual circumstances. Many of the circumstances that led to the injuries that young people have were normal in a sense. They were at parties, they were walking down the street, somebody tried to get their chain. We have to see the diversity of experience, but even for those people who are involved in things, in selling drugs or involved in the streets, we have to find a way. In that moment of vulnerability, when they're thinking about their lives, seeing this moment as a wake-up call, we, it's our responsibility to engage them. Finally, I would say that the idea of individual responsibility doesn't remove their responsibility, all of our responsibility together. And so I began by talking about this idea of wrong place, wrong time. The title comes from a phrase that's often uttered by young people as I sat with them. They would say, you know, Doc, I guess I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. What does that mean? Many of them weren't at the wrong place. They were in their communities. Um, often when providers hear those words, they think, oh, yeah, you were minding your own business. It, they take it as a subtle... Um, a subtle way of saying I had no responsibility and then providers aside and blame. But I would take it differently. I would turn this on its head and say there is a right place for us to help young people and to hear the stories that they tell. And that right place is the community, not just the communities where these young people live, but this community, this largely defined community where all of us see young black men as a valued resource and that's not just lip service, that's really what we invest in and we see. And the right time is both early and now. That is, protecting young people from injury and trauma is our most profound work, making sure that young people are safe. We know that not only their emotional health, but their physical health will be improved by that. But we have to intervene and help them heal wherever we find them, whether it's in schools, in the hospital. We can't turn our backs. Uh, I think that we can find something that we didn't know we had in the young people who we have sometimes cast aside. So with that, I thank you for your attention. I would love to hear your thoughts and your ideas and, and make this a conversation about what we'd like to see. Thank you.
like I have a microphone that's working. So if anyone has any comments to make, oh, of course, all the way in the back first. Mm -hmm. Good evening. Thank you so much for your wonderful words. Um, my question is, you talked about the healing place in Philadelphia. Like charter schools, how can we create something like this? Well, one concept that we have begun to uh, learn from that our colleagues have talked about, particularly one colleague, Dr. Sandra Bloom, a psychiatrist, is an idea called trauma-informed practice. That means that wherever we see young people, we recognize that many have experienced really severe trauma in their lives and that that is what affects their behavior. And that safety is primary. Now, one of the things I've seen over my time is that we believe that the way to make schools safe is with more cameras and more metal detectors and more men walking around in uniforms with guns. And that is our way of thinking about safety. But it's not clear that that makes, does what we want it to do. The science behind this is that we know that all of us possess in ourselves this fight or flight mechanism. It we, gets turned on when we're scared and we need to run and fight. It's off when we don't need it. The idea behind uh, post-traumatic stress is that that system doesn't go all the way off. And that's why these young people are hypervigilant, and they can go from zero to 60 in a second, right? Some of it has to do with that idea of respect. Some of that has to do with what it means to be a man. But if we could think about how we make these places healing, it doesn't have to be a hospital. As a matter of fact, it's better if it's not a hospital because that means we've done something before the young person's been shot. But trauma-informed means when we understand the life experience of the person who's coming to us, and that we actually incorporate, make our services match that. Many traumatized people get re-traumatized every place they go. You go to get a driver's license, they talk to you like you're not a person. You go to get you know, uh, assistance, Medicaid, they talk. So it's a constant process that if, if you're already a little bit hyped, can only make it worse. So trauma-informed principles can be applied anywhere and ought to be applied everywhere, I think workplaces would be more healthy if we thought more about, again, these four things. How do we make it safe? How do we help people manage their emotions under these circumstances? How do we help each other deal with loss? And how do we envision the future, not only of the individual, but also of our respective institutions? Um, I have a question. Um, Washington State, um, some of the, uh, the, a judge and a couple of um, public health uh, professionals uh, did a study because they saw a cycle of young uh, people going in and out of the, uh, uh, um, the justice, you know, the, the prison system and the juvenile system. And a judge got concerned about it, so he came up with a program to test the the guys who were constantly coming in and out of the system and found that a large percentage of them had learned disability or certain types of mm -hmm. cognitive brain dysfunction. And once he did testing and got, gave them treatment, he found that the incidence of them going in and out of the prison system dropped dramatically. Has your center and has Drexel looked at this, uh, learned disabilities, dyslexia, ADHD, and other cognitive brain dysfunction as a 
uh, method of, um, you know, minimizing um, recidivism in, within the prison system? That's a very good question. Young people who come through the program are assessed for what parts of their lives are not working. And so many, if they're having difficulty or had difficulty in school, we arrange for them to get those kinds of evaluations. So it's critically important to identify how to make these young people successful as we connect them to resources and services. But you raise a, another important issue. This is where the science, and this is where I do the geeky doctor thing, um, the science tells us a lot about what adversity and trauma do, not only to the body, but to the brain. And so when we are allowing young people, children, to be exposed to neglect and abuse and witnessing violence in all sorts of forms, the idea is that as their brains develop, it shifts all of it shifts their development over towards the survival parts of the brain and away from the kind of more regulatory parts of the brain so trauma isn't only about what it does to how people behave it actually can have brain effects that can be profound but reversible it's important that we we think about the fact that and, the, and these have been shown in animal models similarly animals that have been neglected behave in a particular abnormal way. You can see the changes in their brains. We also know that by intervening, by caring for and providing, for example, one of the most important things we can provide for these young people who have been injured is a caring adult in their lives. Mentorship is great. Mentor programs tend to be really like three months or six months or there's not a, a larger vision about what mentorship could be. I know many of you may work in places where you have a a longer vision, but it really is about a 10-year, a lifelong mentorship for that young person that not only helps them to learn the things that we want them to do, but I would say actually may repair the damage that has happened to their bodies and their minds, their brains over their childhood. That's, that's powerful work, and we should see it as such. Good evening, thank you. Um, I'm listening to your conversation and agree wholeheartedly about the stress and the strife that causes this. Also, my concern is that these are mainly boys. We're talking about young black boys. I think the whole thing has to be looked at from a holistic point of view. Historically, and right now, he's viewed as, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, endangered species, right? Put on endangered species, not expected to live a certain amount of time, and, uh, and in public enemy number one, that's what I want to say. My own experience, okay, and I'm in my 60s, so what I'm saying is not to offend, but it's just the way that it is. Culturally, from day one, the black male have been feared, because if he excels, people can see that, oh, we're going to fall, because, I mean, and you can see it in sports, right? The, the great white hope was somebody to beat a black man physically, right? So you can have a white champion. And I'm saying all that to say all this. One problem with young people today, young men, black men, they do not see a future for themselves in white America. Which is why it's live for the moment. If we could only tell them that the gangsters that they emulate have no use for them, period. Period. Maybe they might understand and say, you know, this is not something I should follow. 
These gangsters hate us. They won't even have you shining their shoes. And this is just facts of life. They don't see that the gangsters never have their women in front street. Their families just totally away from what they're doing. What they do is what they do. They don't bring their families in. They don't bring their women in. And family is sacred to them. We don't, the boys don't see like that. All they see is the glimmer and the glamour and the bling and the bling. So our young men have to feel that they too have a future here. And, and I like to say to them personally, the earth belongs to everybody. It don't belong to no one person. It's there for every living thing on it. The, the things we can't see and the things that we can't see, which are ourselves. Once you know that the earth is yours too, then maybe I'll give you a different concept. It doesn't belong to no one person. It's here for everybody. Okay? He's gonna. This I think they're gonna. This because they're gonna. They're gonna bring you on. Okay. Hi. One of the things that I wasn't sure about, and and I think you said it in a different way, was the fact that most of these young men feel guilty. They feel that something they didn't do, whether it was glaring at the person until the person withered away, kept them in that situation. And one of the things I've often wondered about is what it is that people can do to make black children feel more empowered. There is such a thing as a good feeling about entitlement so that nobody defines you and you can begin to realize that you didn't create your own hell. And I wonder whether that's part of your process. I think it is. I, I think we think about it as kind of fundamental safety is necessary to be able to explore what your life could be. And there is a sense in which I would say many of the young people feel um, it's almost remorseful. That is, in the same way that you or I might feel like, I just wish I had done something different that day. I think I would feel the same way if I something bad happened. I wish I had just stayed in the bed five minutes longer. I wish I had not gone where I went, gone to that party. Um, that's pretty normal, I think, to try and that's what stories do. It helps you make sense of, of the world, what the, why this happened. Does this mean something about me, or does it simply, is it one of those wrong place, wrong time experiences? The problem is that in the settings where they go to get help, someone often just reinforces the, the, the idea, the negative, rather than saying, no, no, think about this, what's your story? It's, it's very rare for young people to get to tell their story, for injured victims to get to tell their story in the healthcare setting. Mainly, I think um, healthcare providers don't really want to hear it because it's painful. They don't believe it often, and they don't want to be taken to court. They think that somehow, by asking somebody what happened. So again, we get this veneer where you simply make an assumption rather than. So we we have a way we can change how we see them and how we talk to them that opens up those opportunities for them. This. Yeah. Um, I just, I just wanted to know, like, how, do, why, how do you think, how do you think it is, like, do you think black, well, us black young males commit most of the crimes we commit and things like that because, like, growing up with a single parent or, like, why do you think, like, they do what they do? That's, um... Part of what you, what you mentioned, I think, is for one of the things that we have to recognize is that um, 
in this country, it's not just being a young black male, it's being a poor young black male, living often in neighborhoods where the schools don't serve you well, where you don't feel safe, where the environment doesn't speak safety to you. And so it's more than simply who you are. It's, it's all of the forces, the, the lack of the supportive forces around you. I, with regard to parents, I do think parenting is, is a tough job under all circumstances. I th- wish that more young men had access to their fathers in their homes. But in, in, given that that's not possible, um, the question is who can fill that role? And I think one of the most powerful interventions we can have is simply a caring adult, a caring adult who is willing to be with that young person for the long term, whether that's a man or a woman, a relative, having someone there for those times when there's stress is maybe the most important thing that we can do um, to try and buffer some of the trauma that's coming to their lives. Absolutely, absolutely. I believe that what you need, the, the idea, one of the things that, that haunts us is that we get really hung up on this idea about what it means to be a man, right? That sometimes we constructed, at least, and this is all of us, we think about men as violent, powerful, strong, sexual, all of those things, right? As opposed to the fundamental ideas of um, responsible integrity. Those things are independent of gender. But having somebody model for you what that looks like, it's important, I think, to have a male do that. I think it's important to have a male in your life who can model for you, no, no, that's, don't, don't pay attention to that. Keep your eye on this, because you can still be this man and do another way, right? And that's part of the discussion that Roy and I had, which is, you know, what does it mean to be a man? What, you've heard that a man means you strike first and you strike hard and you end the fight quickly. Is there another way to be a man? There is not just one way. And the way that, um, the way that we've put out there is a destructive way in many ways, and it often is destructive to the family because it means that there's often violence uh, going both ways in relationships. So I think it is possible. Uh, Dr. Rich, first of all, I want to thank you so much for your powerful book. I had an opportunity to speak with you a little bit earlier, and we talked about the power of the media and stereotypes, and I mentioned, in my own humble opinion, the horrific effect the HBO television series The Wire has had on Baltimore in terms of perpetuating unhealthy stereotype of uh, African men and boys. And I can understand, unfortunately, to a certain extent, the white dominant culture having sort of a fear of large black men or loudly speaking black men and not having enough sensitivity and compassion to embrace their whole humanity, even when they are physically injured. But also, can you address the issue that I've come across as an educator using the arts with young people of African-American folks buying into the same stereotype and being even more so fearful of African boys and men themselves. I've had a colleague interacting 
with um, some of the students who said, you know, look at that big old boy over there. You know, he's about a couple of minutes from jail. And, and then not even when you see young men on the street in a, in a crowd and want to go over and if you think they're too loud and being too boisterous, instead of going over and asking them, to, uh, first asking their name, how they're doing, then asking you being a bit too loud, there's some folks in the community being just as fearful of them and not understanding the maturation that you may see a young man, I'm six foot three, you may see a young man who is six foot one, but he's only 14 years old. And seeing the physical thing, viewing him as an adult, when inside he's still a baby. So those are the things, particularly within the African-American community, that we may have to address our own biases towards African young men. I, th I think you've said it perfectly. I... Um one of the struggles is we, we've abandoned the word boy in part because of the meaning that it's had where boys, uh, men were called boys. So that is a, often offensive. But calling boys men has its own unintended consequence. So that when a 14-year-old is viewed as a man and a black man, then he is often viewed as a threat. And not a boy, he's a child. You know, I understand where the transition to adulthood, we have to respect that. But that mental model, I think, gets us in, in some trouble. You know, I can't much comment on The Wire. A um, number of people have encouraged me to engage it because they knew that these kinds of questions would come up. <laughs> but <laughs> that's right. I, you know, I find it, I actually find it painful. I, what I have watched, I find painful, so I can't quite get through it. I, I am interested in, in your perspective as, as residents of Baltimore and hearing what you think those kinds of messages are. The perspective as a, you know, what are the perspectives? Is it a law enforcement perspective? How do we balance those perspectives? But uh, to the main point, I think that these held notions of young black men are not reserved for white people. They are, all of us have bought into them in some way. And how do we actively resist them? Um, not only to this larger, whenever we hear it out in the, in the world, but to the faces of young men themselves, which is that that's not you. That's not what it means to be a young black man. Don't accept those, those pervasive images. And then work with them about what it means to be, what they can be, and how they define themselves. So I applaud the work you're doing. I think it's critical. Oh, I would say one more thing. We know that arts can help heal the effects of trauma. We know that physical activity can help heal some of these disruptions. But what is it we do when dollars get short? We pull physical education out of schools. A trauma-informed perspective would tell you something. We have to take all of this together. Um, we have to provide mental health healing treatment to people who are incarcerated. It just makes sense. It's, it's the right, not just the right thing to do, it's the effective thing to do, many of us believe. Hello. I used to work in an emergency room in Watts at Martin Luther King Hospital, uh, and we saw a lot of trauma. And um, I hated to see the gunshot wounds and get the blood on me. So I had a very good solution. I found out that most of our... Uh, a lot of our gunshot wounds came from a place we called Nickerson Gardens. So I had the idea that we could make things very easy for us in the day if we just blew up Nickerson Gardens. That would take, that would take a lot of weight off of us. But 
um, a friend of mine lived a friend of mine lived only a few blocks from Nickerson Gardens, and we were going to play tennis, and he said he wanted to stop over at Nickerson Gardens. Anyhow, it was early in the morning, and it was time for people to go to work. I worked different shifts, but anyhow, we, worked, we went over there, and I looked, and it was interesting. No one was heading to work. There were a few couple people hidden out of the back. There's a back area hidden to the liquor stores, but no one was heading to work at all. And so I went over a few times. I never saw anyone heading to work. I didn't see people coming back home from work. And so um, that kind of changed my impression about uh, Nickerson Gardens. And I said, where I lived when I was young, all the men worked. All the men worked. They were all poor. They all worked. If you had a family, you considered uh, shiftless no good if you didn't work at least two jobs. And uh, so we saw people going to work every day. My father, all other men going to work every day. So that had a certain, uh, they gave me a certain image about work and the importance of work. The more you work, the more you get. And you work, and when you go to Nickerson Gardens, you look. If you see someone there during the daytime, if they're not going for liquor, the ones that look successful are people who are pimps or drug dealers. And I think that it's going to be uh, it's, it's a kind of tough problem for the doctors to do what you do because I think a lot of doctors probably see things similar to what I saw uh, in Watts before I, went to, uh, before I went to Nickerson Gardens. And most of them probably say, I wouldn't go anywhere near Nickerson Gardens. That's the way <laughs> the people that I talked to uh, were. So they're probably not, they're probably not going to see, uh, they're probably not going to see that. But I think probably the big thing that we're probably going to have to work on is just simply... Uh, um, where are the black role models for the young boys? If the young boy sees something, whatever you do usually is based on some role model. Somewhere in your mind, you see someone doing something and you think uh, you can do it. And most of our black boys, unfortunately, when you look all through television, it's almost all you have to be an uh, athlete or entertainer. And that's what I thought I had to be until I broke my ankle and I changed my work. As you move, I just want to say that that hasn't been my experience. As I have, uh, when I lived in Roxbury um, in Massachusetts, what, what is true, though, is there are people in communities and housing developments who do go to work, but they may not be visible, so visible to the young people there. And so we have to, again, take the roof off that idea that we say, yeah, there are, there are people who work two jobs. It's just that they're always coming and going. Roy said, you know, the problem is that sometimes those people walk past us like we don't exist. So how do we make that merge? How do we help those hardworking people connect their work with the health of that community? It's... it's, it's um, 
It's something I think they would want to do. How do we make it happen for them, though? Is the Actually, is, um, is a comment. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I, uh, I'm an attorney, and I work in a drug treatment center, and we have 120 beds, and the large majority is all-male facility, and the large majority of them are black men. And I just really want to applaud you. My, ha my heart is pounding because I feel like you have uh, brought something that we, you know, it's, it's almost like it hasn't been addressed. Uh, this, we, we talk about humanity and all of that, but you're uh, taking the time to look at black men, young boys, and looking at them as human beings as they are, for me just makes a difference in my work because every day I'm talking to young black men ranging from the age of, say, 20 to 65, actually, and I'm doing the work, recalling warrants, doing, going to court, and I've been doing this, uh, working in the criminal justice system since mm -hmm. 1983. And so I've become numb. So speaking of emotional numbness, you can become numb to the work that you're doing. Because I went to, to this job two years ago really hopeful and excited about making a difference in black men's lives. And as a black woman, I, I would ask, how do, what, what can I do um, just to make a difference? Because I, every day, talk to the, the Roys and the Davids. Mm. And uh, just two weeks ago, one young man told me, he said, I wish I wasn't in treatment because if I was still in jail, then I could handle my business the way I want to. I don't have to take what people are saying. And we had maybe an hour and a half conversation around that. But as a black woman, I really couldn't relate in the way. I was trying to get him to see that violence wasn't the answer and that there were black men who were handling their business without a gun or, or so forth. So I just appreciate, and I can't Thank wait you. to read your book, I appreciate what you're doing, and I hope that you get to talk to more and more people about this issue because this emotional numbing that black men experience if they start at a young age, by the time they get to be 30 and 40 and 50, you can only imagine uh, you know, how their lives have turned out. But I feel like this is something that even all this time I've been working in the system and have three brothers who have been in and out of jail that I'm just getting privy to. So I really do appreciate that you took this time to investigate and to write a book and to share with the world. Thank you very much. Let me just say, I think that you're doing critical work. And, and I, this is, um, I wrote this book because I couldn't not write this book. Because I had heard, I felt like I had heard these profound stories and that somehow I had the privilege of being able to uh, talk about them, and again, I would the the my greatest debt of gratitude is to the young men who shared their stories and allowed me to hear from them. As young people enter the legal system, they often are profoundly affected by these same issues. So, 
when you have been injured, when you've been victimized, you have to go into court and sit opposite the person who hurt you. And if you think about it from a trauma perspective, you may have seen that face constantly in your mind since the day that this happened. You may have been haunted by the face of the person who did this to you. And yet we, when young people resist that process, we have to understand and explain to them what's going on and help them make their way. Um, and, And for children, this is often meant having the abuser often in a different room, right? So children can testify in a safe place. On closed-circuit TV, that's coming about. But all of this understanding, trauma-informed, affects the young people that you're seeing, or all of the people that you see in the criminal justice system. It offers us new ways to think about how to address the the root cause, which may be the trauma and, and adversity they've experienced over their lives. So thank you. end of our program. Uh, Dr. Rich will be here to sign books and also speak with you if you'd like to, uh, to talk with him further. Um, once again, I want to thank you thank very, you. very much thank for you. coming and for an amazing book. Thank you so very much. Appreciate and thank you all. <laughs>